A British Midlands Argonaut is trying to land at Manchester Airport, but they don't make it. What causes flight to crash in the middle of a town? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey, hey, hey. Hello. We have, a, a, like, two new patrons to thank. Oh, crap. Really? Yep. Yeah, we do. Wow. We, do. we got one today, and we got one last week after yeah. we finished recording. So. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Thank you to our new patrons, Carolyn and Alec. Hello. Yeah. Welcome. Welcome to the disaster show, where we are actually disasters, and we talk about disasters. <laughs> <laughs> I am the disaster today. <laughs> Carolyn joined today at 10.03 a.m. Thanks. Thank you. Congratulations. Our time, that is. So, other housekeeping stuff. Send in stories, because... We, we like stories. We have another story episode on deck. We actually have to record that one. Yes. But we then, after that, have a whole, like, fresh slate. Like, we don't have any... I think we have, like, two from David. Yeah. <laughs> Shocker. Yeah. Thanks, David. Uh, <laughs> we love you. So if you'd like to submit some stories for a listener episode, one came out not that long ago. Yes. If you've never heard it before, I highly, highly, highly suggest you go listen to those. Definitely. They're really good episodes. They, they are I good. know that they don't get as many listens, but they really should, because there's a lot of good stuff. I just don't and think listen people to them chrono- know what they are. I know. And listen to them in chronological order. Because they're better at chronological order. They are definitely better in chronological it, order. It there has, are overarching stories. Yeah, there's overarching storylines via David, via Andrew. Right. There <laughs> are Spock. Via Spock. There are weird story arcs happen in our listener story episodes. So if you haven't listened to those, I key suggest you go listen to those. If you're new, definitely check them out. They're really funny. A lot of them are really funny. Some of them make, will make you cry. It's a whole thing. If you have a story you want to submit, there is a listener's form on the website for you to do so. You can submit questions as well if you'd like to ask a question. We have that information also on the website. So feel free to do that. Also, if you sent in a recommendation via Instagram, via Facebook, yep. via email, anything, and we haven't gotten back to you... Please let us know. Can you just like re-email them to us? Do another poke at us if we haven't responded to it. Because I... I, I saw tried, Rich today. Yeah, yes. And I, I responded... I know where this was going. I responded because I was like, it got buried somewhere. Somewhere you sent it to us and we didn't find it. Right. And I did it and I immediately put it in the schedule. So yeah. because I have time right now, like this is the time to do it. Yep. Actually, this is in two weeks from now. So maybe not so much, but... Yeah, we're coming in hot to the not so much time. <laughs> yeah, but. it's gonna. My oh. life's gonna get busy. Real and we fast. have to answer trivia questions. Oh yeah, that's true. So we'll do that's that in this right. episode too. That's good. Right. That's good because this is gonna be a short episode. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's what you say. Maybe your part isn't, but my part's short. I have to explain things without pictures, even though we have the pictures, but not everyone, like, if people are driving, they can't just, mm-hmm. like, look at the pictures, mm-hmm. so I have to try, and it's a lot of words. To I know. <laughs> I have to try. I know. We'll when they say a picture is worth a thousand words, okay, maybe it's not that many, but... <sighs> yeah, I, so, I understand. Long story short, if you don't know what the trivia questions are, they're in the monthly newsletter. If you've never if you've never heard of this before, you can sign up for the newsletter on the main page of the website and you can check it out i send it out at the beginning of the month sometime (laughs) usually it's on the first but sometimes i'm like "Mm, oops oops and it's a little bit after the first but it's usually within the first week 
of the month. Yeah. And then has a bunch of stuff. It has what's coming up. It has what we covered already. So if you are new and you don't know what we've covered, it's on there. And then, but spoiler alert, because I definitely say like what happens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then, not in detail, but you know. And then a Patreon exclusive of like what we're covering like what I'm covering for the Miranda Sode and all that stuff. And then there's a little tidbit of the month and there's the tribute questions. And then it, there's a theme for the stories. You don't have to use that theme. Nope. You can just send us a story really of any kind, honestly. We've had everything across the sun. So if you have a funny story and you want to tell it, just you can go ahead and do that. Yeah. You can be a Billy Blue Jeans. <laughs> or a denim dave that's right and if you don't know what those are you need to go check out the last letter <laughs> all right i think that's all the housekeeping for right now we just sent all ducks and merch out for people so you should be getting all of your stuff soon yay yay we figured out what the hell is going on with our stupid postage stuff finally it all worked it out it took forever basically they don't take our card for some godforsaken reason anymore Stupid. Yeah, because it was on our card. And For then forever. It, it stopped. And, and then it stopped. It, and then that really yeah. put a wrench in things. Yeah. So so we found a really weird workaround, but we're making it happen. Yeah. So sorry about the delay, but you should be getting ducks and you should be getting merch unless you just joined. Sorry. And then you won't be getting your merch yet. But it um, will be happening soon. Has anyone checked if we can send stuff to Australia yet? I, unless Paige has checked. I haven't checked. I am going to doubt that anything has changed. Uh, yeah, same. That would be like newsworthy I stuff, I feel like. I wanted to change, though, because... We all do. We have people there that deserve stuff. Why it's so expensive to send things there? I don't know. Stupid. It is stupid. It's not like there aren't airplanes. To take stuff there. Yeah. All right. So what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Golf-Alpha Lima Hotel Golf, also known as the Stockport Air Disaster. Uh-oh. Yeah. That's not good. This accident occurred on June the 4th of 1967. So it's pretty old. Pretty old. This was a Canadair C4 Argonaut. This is one of many variations of the DC-4. This is pertinent information. It is pertinent information. Very pertinent information. Wasn't the DC-4... Okay, and you're... I'm sorry. I'm already mm-hmm. asking questions. No, it's okay. Probably Please. are already going to answer. Not necessarily. Wasn't the DC-4... Unpressurized or was it pressurized? It, well, there are version, both versions of okay. DC4. However, it's primarily unpressurized. Yeah. Because square windows. <gasps> oh no! <laughs> oh no! That's, no. <laughs> it's primarily an unpressurized. Airplane. You mean you don't want it to implode? <laughs> no. There's very few that ever were pressurized, so this is a pressure, unpressurized, basically DC4. However, this being a C4 Argonaut was a Canadair modified C4. DC-4, basically. It has different engines, okay. which is pertinent. Do you, how de- In detail, do you want me to get into that right now? Sure. Okay. Because I don't. So the DC-4 normally had radial engines with Got it. a lot of pistons. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like 26 of them each. Yeah. I thought it was an odd number. It depends on the engine, but because these were stacked. Oh. I think we've covered even piston engines before. Yeah. You're going to have to go back, guys. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so anyways... This is not that. This is modified to have four V12 piston engines. So they are literally in a V and they're Merlin engines. So Merlin engines were actually pretty well known throughout history. And there's been a lot of different Merlin engines, but these were used on many types of vehicles. However, 
most notable V12 aircraft in existence are like the P51, which was a actually mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. reliable mm-hmm. aircraft with a V12 engine. We've covered a P51. Mm-hmm. Yes, I believe we have. There are P51s that are still setting world records for piston engine aircraft speed and propeller engine. Well, good speeds. for them. They're practically breaking the sound barrier in P51s, which is absolutely insane. What the <laughs> hell? Look that up. I I'm promise good. you it's real. I prom we, we don't think you're lying. <laughs> it's unbelievable. So, V12s are pretty powerful. You don't need to have so many moving parts like 26 piston radial engines. So, yeah, it's got a different set of engines. And it was called something different because it was modified by a different company. Yada, yada, yada. Real quick, I want to pull mm-hmm. back a little bit because we said square windows. And some of you might be going, why Why square windows? Why that problem? You should the go back comet. to the comet crashes we talked about. Yes. And Not- we had Dr. Chris Shikaki on right. to discuss why uh, having sharp, pointy corners on windows is a bad idea. Also, right. guess who now works for an aviation company? Oh, is it Chris Shikaki? Dr. Chris Shikaki now works for an aviation the company. The Yak Man? Which I think is hilarious. Anyway, if you want to hear about the comet crashes, that happened in episode 46. Yep. With a long the, time ago. With, which was recommended by a Chris, but not the Yak Chris. Not the Yak Man. Not the Yak Man. But he was on that episode. Yeah. Okay. This was a flight from Palma Airport in Mallorca, Spain, to Ringway Airport in Manchester, England. Hmm. This was not a scheduled flight. This was a charter flight of some kind. They don't really specify too much beyond that. But that's why this crash doesn't have a flight number. It has a tail number. Right. Although a lot of charter flights these days have flight numbers, but... Not all of them. Not all of them. I don't have names for the crew, but I do have everything else. Okay. So it is at this point that I would like to point out that there are two versions of the report. Yes, there are. The AAIB version does have the last names. Okay. Well, I didn't go to the AAIB looking for names, nor do I feel the need to. I will explain more later. Okay. Anyways, the report that I used. Which is the ICAO circular. Yes. Which had plenty of information, to be quite frank. Didn't have names. That's the only thing it didn't have. The captain was a 41-year-old male who had 10,197 hours total, of which 2,009 were with the Argonaut. Okay. That's pretty, that's like, That's respectable. Yeah. It's good. First officer was a 21-year-old male, so 20 years between them. He had 1,001 hours total, of which 136 were on the Argonaut. Could be worse. I can't imagine being 21 years old and flying an airliner. Out of curiosity, did the report say their heights... Is that is that pertinent for later? Yes. Yeah. I should go look. There's a lot of things going on here that like we're not giving you any kind of hint to what's happening. <laughs> like we've we've really got this got you confused. <laughs> I don't understand. Is it like an amusement park ride? Like <laughs> they have a, they have a certain height to fly. Like I just I need enough. Like that's the first thing that popped into my head is like they go into the airport. And they have one of those like. The, the ruler, height gauges? Ruler things? Yeah. yeah, the height, height gauges. Ga- like, yeah. you have to be this tall to ride, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I don't know. That, that we, you have I to know be we, this tall to fly. I know. All this, like, weird foreshadowy stuff we're doing, and we haven't really given you anything to actually go on. You, there, hmm, the chances of you guessing what happens are not zero. <laughs> slim to none? Not slim. You're smart. We've covered a lot of Why stuff. Why does that sound <laughs> You're smart. <laughs> I'm trying to think if if we've covered enough stuff that will give you enough uh uh the um background. Okay. To understand what's I don't think so. That's okay. We'll get there. You are smart and I love you. 
You, you also need to stop guessing, so I'm hoping you don't guess this one. <laughs> this one might be a surprise for it's, once. <laughs> I feel like it's been a little bit of a while since I've been able to guess, guess the entire anything. thing. Yeah. yeah. You're not going to guess this one. That's not the entire thing. That's for sure. The fact that I have a slideshow means you probably won't guess the entire thing. Yeah. Because it means I have to explain something we've never seen before. Right. True. So let's do it. So again, this was a non-scheduled round-trip flight between Manchester and Mayorka, Spain. The aircraft arrived at Palma at 2.20 a.m. GMT time. So, quite frankly, I didn't do the conversion, but I'm guessing there's about two hours difference for Palma de Mallorca. But maybe not. Might be GMT. Might be an hour different. Not sure. Uh, it's a two-hour difference. Two-hour difference? That's what I thought. Okay. So they arrived at 4.20 a.m. <laughs> Local it. time. That's That's... All of the times were in GMT, and that actually wasn't clarified, which... I feel like Made me mad. Yeah. But I figured it out eventually. I was like, oh, good. So all of this is in GMT. Great. But I found that out after I wrote my notes. Ah. So I haven't gone back to correct the time, so I'm going to do the best I can to say the right thing, knowing what I mean from what I wrote. Okay. Anyways, in Palma, the aircraft was refueled and 79 passengers boarded the flight, joining the five crew, which included the two flight crew, two cabin crew, and a company engineer who was in the cockpit. There was just, I just read a description about this individual. He had a, yes. he had a um, title. I love this title. Did you write it down? No, but I, I read it in the report. <laughs> and this is hilarious. This engineer... Hold on, hold on. I got it, I got it, I got it. Also on the flight deck was a supernumerary yes. engineer. <laughs> yeah, supernumerary engineer. A super numbers engineer? <laughs> <laughs> who was an just really good at numbers? <laughs> Who was an experienced... Thank you. Number person? No, that's just what it says. Who was an experienced, although... Oh, hold on. There's more of the sentence that was just worded weirdly. Who is an experienced, though not certificated, ground engineer. There is another fun part in the ICAO circular in the history of flight that I will read later. Should I, so I should stop reading? Don't read any of the actual history of flight. Okay. He was flying on the subject flight in order to perform ground engineer duties when the aircraft was away from its home station. He had no duties to perform in the air, but used to help out by filling in instrument readings in the technical log and instrument and fuel logs. And if asked to do so by the pilot in command or co-pilot, he would move control levers or switches in flight. For example, the radiator shutter controls and the fuel booster pump switches during the approach check. That all seems a little sketch, right? <laughs> Experienced, but not certificated. There's regulations against these things yeah. today. Like, you can't do that. If you're not a flight crew... Don't touch it! And you're in the cockpit, and you're not part of the flying crew, you can't participate. You don't... No touchy. Not in regular operations. No you cannot touchy. participate, right? No touchy. No touchy. Not That's in regular how operations. people die. <laughs> so, anyways, this individual's in the cockpit, and is also there. Now, mind you, 79 people... And it's not that the DC-4 or the C-4 Argonaut wasn't a relatively sizable airplane. For a piston airplane, it was pretty big. I have a hard time imagining 79 people in this airplane, though. It, it just doesn't a seem... pretty small airplane? It just doesn't seem like that many people would fit comfortably. What? Like, size comparison, what would it be comparable to? The only thing I can think is, like, any 175 in size. See, I would think that would fit, like, 80 people. 76, actually. Oh. Very specifically. Oh. With a business class, mind you. So, okay, so I mean, it could happen. Yeah, but still, there's like, 
I, I don't know. That's not I, this airplane is still kind of strange though with its configuration because mind you they can't put cargo underneath, so there's a cargo hold at the rear which also takes up space. Okay. So, I don't know. Just anyway. I mean, have you seen some of the old pictures? They used to just put lawn chairs. In oh, I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, like, talk about it. This was before the time of even like having seatbelts, like in cars. Like it was a thing. Yeah, but. This is aviation, and now we're in the jet age already. Like this airplane is relatively old, but we'll talk about it. Because actually, by the way, do you talk about that? Because it actually doesn't come up in the analysis. I know it doesn't, and or the it, cause. No, it doesn't, and it doesn't really come up anywhere. But we will talk about it. Okay, good. Is there an oopsie? Ah, uh, there's an this ouchie. Flight might have changed some very major things. Oh. There's a reason this one's on our schedule. So it's also very important. Not only was it on our schedule previously, but I had brunch with my dad and some family on Sunday. And he's like, hey, so I was driving um, one of my usuals to the airport because he drives for a black car service. And we were talking about aviation safety. And like, how do you end up on this subject? And he's like, I was going to talk about the podcast, but I hadn't gotten there yet. And he's like, my passenger told me about this uh, safety feature on planes and that it happened because of this incident. And, like, described what happened. And I'm like, mm-hmm. so we're recording that <laughs> this week, this episode. Right. So we'll talk about that later. Okie dokie. But it's not part of the cause for some reason or anything. No one talks about it. Yeah. It, we will talk about it. It's really strange. We'll, we'll, why was this not a bigger deal in the reports? But it's fine. We'll talk about it. It's, it's fine. fine. It's fine. But people died. Yeah, you're not wrong. Anywho, the engines were started and the aircraft taxied for takeoff. The first officer was the pilot flying for this leg while the captain was the pilot monitoring. They actually did have relatively clear-cut roles at this airline. Well, it was pilot in command and co-pilot. Yes, but they still had roles, which actually was... Quite different from... Yeah, Normal. I mean, it was it was starting to become a thing, but we're talking about the 60s here. This is still long before CRM, but... It's the 60s and it's charter. Right, so usually it's kind of still like a tradesies thing, but they were they had still pretty clear-cut roles and they held to them for their leg, but we'll, we'll talk about it. As they should, mm-hmm. I feel like. The flight departed Palma at 6.06 a.m. local time. The takeoff, climb, and cruise were uneventful. So we talking about landing. Oh. Roundabout. We forgot to say earlier, thank you to Helen for recommending this. Oh. Yes, this is another Helen one, because oh, it's, it's UK. Yeah. So, spoiler, this happens on landing. Yes. The aircraft began its descent between 9.56 a.m. and 10 a.m., local time in Manchester. The aircraft was being vectored by the air traffic controller to set up for the ILS localizer approach, or instrument landing system, in Manchester. 10.01 a.m. and 30 seconds. The air traffic controller informed the flight that they were nine miles from the touchdown point. He also informed them that they were pretty well to the left of the center line. So, so the air- they're not lined up like they should be. Right. So the air traffic controller asked if they were receiving the localizer. The captain replied that they were receiving the ILS, the signal, and they would turn right slightly. A short time after this transmission, things go wrong. Oh, well. The number four engine suddenly stopped producing power. Uh, what? This is the engine... On the outside, on the right wing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So from the engines are numbered from left to right. Yes. We're talking about the far right. If you if you haven't been here before. Yes. That's how most like four engineer craft are. All. All. 
<laughs> I don't all know. aircraft. I don't want to say all because I didn't no. know all. But all aircraft left are to numbered. right is one to four yep. or all. one to two or whatever. Right. All aircraft are the engines are numbered from left to right. That includes the tail. The tail's in the middle. Or one to yep. three. Yes. Yep. They're all numbered left to right. About fifteen seconds later, the number three engine stopped producing power. Uh oh. The captain took over as pilot flying. At this point. Which you should do. Yeah, honestly makes sense. He has the experience. Good call, good call. I'm not mad. Yep. Just after 9.03 a.m., the air traffic controller asked if they were still receiving the ILS, as they were... Bro, we got other problems. Still a little off the ILS. Yeah, our engine (laughs) stopped working. At that time, the captain replied, quote, Hotel golf is overshooting. We've got a little bit of trouble with RPM, end quote. Now, overshooting is... The British term for go-around at oh, the time. Oh, I was just going to say, I was like, wait a minute. Overshooting was their term for go-around. That just replace one with the other, that's exactly what they mean. Okay. There's not, like, normally with an overshoot in aviation, we think they're going to overrun the runway. Right. But no, what they mean is they're going around. I literally was going to be like, why the this hell is, would they land? They're still in the air. This is why verbiage has changed. At the time, the aircraft was at 116 knots indicated and at 1,838 feet above sea level. The air traffic controller instructed the flight to turn left to 160 degrees and climb to 2,500 feet. The air traffic controller then asked why they were overshooting or going around. Didn't he just say that they had RPM problems? Well, and so he repeats himself. The crew responds, quote, We've a little bit of trouble with RPM. We'll advise you. End quote. 9.03 a.m. and 51 seconds, the captain asked what the left turn was at so far. Now, what I mean by that is he's not really tracking his turn. For some reason, I this okay. A little bit of a confusing point. They're busy in the cockpit, needless to say, and he's requesting what the turn was supposed to be, but also like where he's at in the turn. Yeah, where you be in relation to what was requested. Right. At that time, the air traffic controller replied that they had actually turned about twenty-five degrees to the right when they were instructed to turn to the left a lot. Oh. And they had gone to the right twenty-five degrees oh. from where they had been. You see, they don't know how to, how to, you know, uh, what's the word? Follow directions. Right. They were busy. <laughs> so, I mean, when you have a, an engine out, yes, I right. can understand you worrying more about the engine. What and, about two? And mind you, both right side engines are not functioning. Oh, so, two engines. Somehow I missed that. Sorry. Yeah, number four and the number three engine quit 15 seconds later. So they are now in, in, in it. They're, it's very easy for this airplane to turn right. <laughs> <laughs> because There's the no two left engines are functioning, yeah. producing power, pushing the left engine forward, or the left wing forward, but the two right engines aren't producing power, and they are not pushing the right wing forward. So <laughs> it's pretty easy to go right. Yeah. You see, it's very hard to go left when you have nothing that's able to turn you left. Right. They have, obviously, their flight controls, but it takes that, a lot you to have, counteract. That's a lot of drag. Yes. I, I, I could see maybe not turning so much to the to the left. To the right? Left. Left. Yes. I'm confused already. To the left. To the left. Like, I can see, like, uh, we're kind of sort of, like, straightening out a little bit, but right. turning the opposite direction? Yeah, yeah. So, all that to say, the air traffic controller then instructed him then to continue turning right instead and turn to a heading of 020. Got it. So, basically, what he was trying to do was take him off of the path, go 90 degrees one way, and now instead he's saying go 90 degrees the other way mm-hmm. <laughs> to go away so that he can eventually reset them back up for the same approach and once again he instructed them to climb to 2500 feet the first officer acknowledged these instructions which was not done the first time 904 a.m and 41 seconds the air traffic controller requested the flight advise when they were ready to commence the approach again 
The aircraft speed was now 111 knots, and they were flying at 1,287 feet. So they have lost altitude and speed. Phew. It was around this time that the aircraft descended below the clouds where there was good visibility. They could actually see the ground. <laughs> Not, wow, really? But they were supposed to be going up. 10.05 a.m. and 26 seconds, the air traffic controller told the flight that they were seven miles from the airfield, flying on a heading of 040 degrees, and requested their altitude. So they had gone 20 degrees past their instructed heading to yeah. the right. Yeah. Well, well, yes. They're I still mean, turning right. You have two engines not working. Right. I mean, yeah, probably I'm going to keep turning right. Yeah. The flight crew reported being at 1,000 feet. So they have once again descended. It was at this time that the air traffic controller realized that the aircraft was in an emergency situation, what with them continually descending. So. They had not declared an emergency. Why not? Good question. Or at least tell the ATC controller, yo, I got two engines out on the same side. Right. They were playing it down a little bit. Which Why? Is, right. No! It's an emergency! Right. This Your continues. engines are out and they're not relighting, okay? Yeah. It's an emergency. Right. This continues to be kind of a, a, a hot topic in aviation where it's like, how severe do you say it is? Because if it is, it is. If you can't turn a direction... Let me put it this way. If your engine is out, you have an emergency. You have a whole... <laughs> this has since changed in aviation. If you have an engine out, you are in an emergency. It is... A, End of story. A wee-woo-wagon kind of thing. Yes. So... Interesting it, that you bring up wee-woo-wagons. Oh, God damn it. Just keep going. Talk about it. The, the air traffic controller basically made his own inference by the fact that the aircraft was continually not going with his directions and continually descending. I'm surprised. I'm I'm sorry. I'm just very flabbergasted that they were like, yo, we literally can't turn the opposite direction. Like, <laughs> we literally have two engines out on the same right. side. Like, the fact that they're like, it's an RPM issue. Yeah, it's an RPM issue. We're just dealing with this for now. No, it's, it's a whole I can't turn left issue. Right. <laughs> I have missed, I am lose. I cannot go a direction kind of an issue. Right. So all that to say, Sorry. the air traffic controller <laughs> initiated the emergency response at the airport. Good on that person. Yeah. You know, good on them. He then instructed the flight to turn to a heading of 180 degrees. Turn right. Well, they can to a heading of turn right. <laughs> he was kind of figuring that out. He did this in order to shorten their approach to the ILS. So he was trying to get them set up for a full ILS, do kind of a, a long vector around to reset up. But bold now that you, he bold of you to assume they can fly in a straight line right. once they get to the ILS. Right, there's that problem. We'll talk about that. Now, he realized that there was an issue, and he was now instructing them to basically get back to the approach as soon as possible, since they were losing altitude. So at ten oh five AM and forty seven seconds, the air traffic controller asked the flight if they could maintain altitude, and the captain replied, quote, just about end quote, <laughs> as the aircraft was flying at 981 feet, okay. which was only 800 feet above ground level, by the way. So um, at what point, being a captain, right? Because at this point, it probably was the captain's call. Yes. What point do you say, I need somewhere to land because I can mm -hmm. no longer keep this stably in the air? Right. At what point are you like, no, like legit, get everybody out of the way. We can't land properly. I think he was trying very hard to do so, but it wasn't going well. Don't you just love a reply of just about? No, as I just said. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't. 
The air traffic controller then told the flight that they were now eight miles from the touchdown point and instructed them to continue their right turn to 200 degrees and maintain altitude as much as possible. The aircraft's speed then dropped to 100 knots and they lost 341 feet in 10 seconds. We've talked about flights that lose more altitude in a shorter amount of time, but... This is still significant. Usually those are um, jet aircraft. Right. And we're also usually talking about aircraft that have more distance between themselves and the ground. Yeah. Like more altitude to lose. <laughs> yeah. Uh, which they don't have. Right. The captain told the air traffic controller that they were not able to maintain altitude at this point. <laughs> no. No. Yeah. Sherlock. At that point, the air traffic controller then told them that they were still eight miles from the airport and nearing the ILS approach from the right, so they were nearly on the approach, at least. This is where you look for a field. You're not wrong. Hope and pray. You're not wrong. Hope and pray. We'll get there. 10.07 a.m. and nine seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight that radar contact was then lost due to the low altitude of the aircraft and asked if they could adjust their heading for the ILS approach and report when established on the approach. Okay, bruh. They ain't making the ILS approach. No. They ain't going to get there. No. If they're below radar altitude right now, mm-hmm. they're it's not, not a good sign. They're not going to make it to the ILS, much right. less the airport. Right. But what other choice does he have other than to keep saying, try to make it? <laughs> uh, find somewhere to land? I don't know. Well, that's up to the captain. <laughs> and he hasn't been told otherwise, so he's just keeps giving him instructions on how to get back to the airport. Anyways. I'd be like, dude, uh... No. We go land here, okay? Right. Just well, let people come get us. The crew never said that. They should have. <laughs> not, uh, okay, not saying that you shouldn't be optimistic, but at this point, <laughs> it's like, hmm. Now you need to be realistic. Yeah. We'll get there. That's coming soon. At some point, you need to be Coming like, soon to a theater near you. Yeah, yes. like, please stop talking to me. I need to, like, focus on actually getting this aircraft on the ground safe. Did they land right. on a theater? That would be hilarious. No. Damn it. The first officer replied that they had, quote, the lights to our right, end quote, and that they were at 800 feet and just maintaining altitude. So they were just, just okay. maintaining altitude, they were claiming. 800 feet above sea level. Oh. Mind you. Oh. What, what, what's the ground altitude? We'll talk about it in a minute. Okay. okay. But the lights to their right is they're referring to the airport lights. Okay. They see that they are, the, the airport is to their right. They are getting ready for the approach. Remember that moment of realism? It was yeah. at this point that the captain declared an emergency. <laughs> that was supposed controller. to be a full 15 minutes ago. Um, nah, it was only a few minutes, actually. Seven. Yeah. But, okay, I'm sorry. Seven minutes ago. Yes. Well, but, seven minutes between problems and impact. Right. Okay, but when you realize that you don't have two engines, that's when you should be like, you know what? We have a problem. Agreed. We have a whole We have a whole now, wing problem. Yes. I couldn't find anything from or the air traffic controller, on whether or not he replied, but it doesn't seem that he did to that request, having already initiated the emergency response program. So Because the ATC <laughs> controller was like, oh, yeah, they're in distress. Yeah. Way before they were like, oh, yeah, we're in distress. I would right. have laughed if he said, um, I know. Yes. I know. They've already been called. Right. 10.07 a.m. and 35 seconds, the captain requested their position, and the air traffic controller replied seven and a half miles from touchdown. 30 seconds later, the air traffic controller repeated that there was no radar contact. Oh, boy. So how did he even know that? He was guesstimating. Oh. Guesstimating. Yes. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight for landing. Another controller, however, who had overheard the contact loss message, noticed a contact point on his radar oh. and advised the flight that they were six miles from touchdown. So that was a thing. 
That's the only mention of anything with another controller. And again, I say, they ain't gonna make it back to the airport. Well, yeah, the first officer gave the altitude as 500 feet, and the terrain in the area was at 300. Oh. And the aircraft was only flying at 105 knots and falling. Um, again, I say, oh. Mm -hmm. The aircraft was on the ILS approach, well, barely. They were on the approach. Below it? Path, yes, they were well below the ILS, but they were on the approach path. And nearing the Stockport Town Center, well, good which is for a them. populated area right under the approach. A few seconds after 10.09 a.m., the aircraft struck the ground at a level attitude with the right wing slightly down and slightly in a yaw to the right. Maybe because they, they don't have any power on the right side? Right. Eyewitnesses noted that as the aircraft was about to crash, the two other engines were deliberately shut down and that the captain made an effort to put the aircraft into the only open space available, or as it was referred to in the report, I'm going to read this because this is hilarious, the only pocket handkerchief of relatively open space available. The it's the most British I've ever <laughs> Referring to a very small amount of open space. A pocket handkerchief. <laughs> no one knows what that means the british do a very small amount of space why don't they just say a very small amount of space because because they <laughs> extra i mean mind you we also don't like to use actual units of measurement <laughs> to measure things that's true my favorite instance of that was like the the news article that floats around the internet every once in a while that they make fun of that's like the sinkhole the was sinkhole 10 washing machines wide opens up in the middle of a road. And it's like, why do we use everything but literal units of measurement to explain how big something is? You know what I think is the most funny application of that? What? Why do we use fruit, coins, and sports objects to describe hail? Yes. When we could say one inch, two inch. I also know what that is. I also know what five inch is. And I know that that is a very large piece of hail. So is a baseball. <laughs> yeah, but baseballs are round. <laughs> yes! I don't need the object to be round to understand how large something is. Yeah, though. but when you say five inches, is that the diameter? Is that the circumference? You gotta be right. I'm going to assume that it is the what? diameter because that's usually how they measure them. You would assume, but like... A baseball like is a standard say, size. Yeah, I feel like when you say baseball, I understand what a baseball is, you know? I understand what that looks like. Right. Just like a golf ball and uh, pea-sized hail, like that, and a marble, that, and a marble and that a makes quarter, sense to me. a nickel. See, but then those only have diameters. They don't have. I mean, oh they have a circumference, I'm but it's so only sad. around one side. But Anyways. the vi the visuals there. Yeah, exactly. So why can't we use any? Because for me, it would be harder to be like, "What the f is five inches?" And <laughs> the other, <laughs> instead of saying baseball. Oh, okay, that I can picture in my head better than five-inch size hail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no further comment. <laughs> Damn, we sound American. <laughs> yes. <laughs> devil's advocate here, Nick. But we also don't say pocket handkerchief sized yes. plot of empty space right. or whatever the hell they said. So, continuing. The aircraft crashed just short of some very tall apartment buildings and the Lucky. town hall and a police station and the Stockport infirmary. So the wee-woo wagons were close by and arrived in seconds. Well, a good. list of things that I do not want to hit. Police stations, <laughs> hospitals, town halls, 
and apartment buildings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the only other thing I would maybe add to that list is the orphanage. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I don't want to hit anything. Also, when I said coming but, soon to a theater near you, I mean, please not yeah, that. Yeah, not a theater, theater either. Mind you, nobody on the ground was hit. Thank God. Now, there was damage done to some buildings. What? Yes. Because there was also a post-crash fire. The airplane broke apart and there was a fire. Now, they had a horrible description on the Wikipedia page about this. However, the fire did not start immediately. No, it did not. Actually, fuel leaked out before the fire managed to get everywhere. And the horrible thing that's written all over the Wikipedia page is how that fuel managed to leak all over the aft cabin and all of its passengers and then light a flame. Yes. Yeah. As it was put in the Wikipedia page, and again, I am quoting, and I am very sorry for this, the gasoline-soaked passengers were then, I don't, I'd have to read it specifically, but oh, it's pretty bad. Oh, let me get it. I have it right were here. Were they just incapacitated? I have it right here. If it didn't start right away, why weren't they? The fuel uh -huh. tanks had it ruptured and wicked back through the cabin, engulfing and killing most of the fuel-soaked passengers. Who were alive and awake? Yes, because they didn't, it's not like the, the, I wouldn't think the impact would have made any of them pass away. Maybe. Actually, but we'll talk that. about that. I'm going to talk about that right now because I don't talk about it. Well, we can get into that in the second half because I don't have anything to cover in the second half other than the one finding and the one recommendation, which are neither of those things. Okay, so we'll talk about survivability aspects in the second half. But it's very important to this accident, actually. And that's why it's kind of infuriating that it doesn't come up in either report. But we'll talk about it. Anyways, finishing this. Several of the surrounding buildings were damaged by the fire and aircraft parts. Members of the public and police nearby rushed to help survivors yeah. very quickly. And then, of course, the wee-woo wagons were there quickly. A crowd quickly gathered, and they estimated it was as many as 10,000 people showed up which really hampered rescue operations as well as just investigation and everything. Everything, because 10,000 people was quite literally the estimation that showed up to the crash site as soon as they heard word. And a lot of them also witnessed this because it was also like mid-morning mid in the middle of town. Yeah. In all, 12 people survived, including two crew, which did include the captain, all had injuries. 72 people perished in the accident, Ooh. however. The captain suffered from amnesia after the accident. Yeah, I mean... And didn't remember the crash. Do you talk about that? Do you talk about why? Because I know we kind of touched on that a little bit. No. The height thing. Oh, that's not what mine was in reference to. We're talking about two different things. Well, there you go. So... I was actually talking about the co-pilot. Yeah, well, co-pilot passed away. Probably because of his height. Probably because of his height. But also, the captain smacked his head. And guess what kills most pilots in a crash? Usually the dash. Yeah, but he survived and had amnesia. Doesn't remember the crash. And Any of it for the best, but also it wasn't very helpful to investigators. No, especially because this is the time before they had. There yeah. was also one daunting question he asked when he was briefly lucid and awake in the hospital. And his question was, what engine was it? Mm -hmm. There was more than one. Yep, okay, so now time for the analysis. Right, move it on. So uh, you you see, you, you say that there is, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Two engines. Uh-huh. They, they, they stop working. Mm -hmm. Why they stop working? Okay, so this investigation was performed by the AAIB, who did submit their lovely overly formal report. However, 
Every copy I found of it on the interwebs was incomplete and stopped at 23 pages. Oh. Yep. So not super helpful. Both the ICAO Circular and the AAIB report were 23 pages. But the ICAO Circular was complete. It was. And it was written based on the AAIB report. So that is what we used. Also true. You've mentioned not having any flight data recorders. Right. The flight data recorder was recovered from the wreckage. Oh. Well, I I mean more reference to CVR, yes. but there was not a CVR. But the FDR was able to be read out, mostly. I mean, this is 1960, right? Like, yes, it, it's probably pretty. The the indicated airspeed, pressure altitude, and heading were read out, but for some unknown reason, the normal acceleration was not recorded. However, it is estimated that the impact rapid deceleration, as they so aptly put it, was about nine Gs. They Ooh. hit hard. They plowed into that field. I mean, but if... It came to a stop like that. The captain actually did a pretty good job of making that airplane stop in the little tiny open space that it fit. But that was probably the most deadly thing. So, okay, I think I already know the answer to this question, and maybe Mm -hmm. you'll get into it later, but Mm -hmm. did they not use any flight services like the flaps or anything to help them slow down? The only thing they have are flaps. And let me put it this way. On this aircraft... Not very significant speed difference. Oh, okay. What about the gear? Was the gear down? The gear was retracted. Oh, okay. Which probably helped it not break up as bad. Well, yeah, because it, it also belly landed. kept it from adding more debris. Yes. Okay. Unfortunately, the captain, though having lived, did not remember any of the accident, so the first evidence of what transpired was within the wreckage. Engines 1 through 3 all had the 27 to 28 degree pitch angle band corresponding to flight fine position, whereas engine number 4 was feathered. So something was definitely awry, at least with engine number four. Though I'm not 100% sure how, I'm fairly certain it was through the reports from survivors and the one surviving cabin crew that investigators were able to determine that engine four had shut down and was feathered, and engine three eventually also shut down, within 15 seconds, later found out, and was allowed to windmill, according to however they figured that out. Still not 100% sure how they figured it out, I'm assuming it was survivor statements. Okay, so my next question, and again, I know you're getting into it, but I'm going to ask it anyway, because I'm sure a lot of other people were like, hey, what the hell? Feathered. Mm -hmm. Did the pilots do that? Assumedly, yes. Okay. So feathered means that the propeller is allowed to still spin, but it's not producing any drag. Right. So it it just means that the propeller blades kind of rotate so that when they do the thing, there's no drag. And the other one wasn't feathered. Nope. It was windmilling, producing drag. Did they not realize it? That is a good question. Let me get much further down. Okay. (laughs) This scenario was confirmed through flight tests, demonstrating that with landing gear retracted and flaps extended up to 15 degrees, though not confirmed, as reported by the surviving cabin crew, and with the engines in the two failed states, the controllability of the aircraft with just engines one and two was severely compromised due to the heavy rudder input required to maintain steady flight. Through these tests, even with full rudder trim, it was not possible to maintain height at full power on the two remaining engines. This would only be exacerbated if the pilot in question was short, as the ability to reach some of the fuel cocks, the fire extinguishers, and the altimeter millibar setting knob were not within reach when putting full pressure on the rudders unless you unbuckled your seatbelt. So not saying that's how the co-pilot died, but maybe? Mm Mm-hmm. Again, they didn't specify height, so I can't assume that either of the pilots were short, but it was mentioned, so I'm assuming at least one of them was. Well, and short, I mean, that, like, is, like, 
how short are we talking? I know. I don't know. And this I know is, we don't know. But this is also before planes were uh, ergonomically designed, right? Hmm. Which is important because from whichever seat you need to be able to reach most everything, and that was not the case. Yeah, that. Mm. Hmm. Given the initially low fire immediately after the crash, it's safe to say that fuel levels were suspicious. In fact, it was discovered that the number four main fuel tank was empty. 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 Although I'm doing my best in writing this so as to convey the design fully verbally, please look at the website. There are pictures to summarizing what I am saying much faster than I can say it. On the Argonaut, there are eight fuel tanks, four mains and four auxiliaries, which are arranged in pairs of mains and auxiliaries that go to each engine. From there, there are four selector valves that allow the crew to switch between the main tanks and auxiliary tanks or draw from both for each engine. The controls for these control valves are on the left side of the throttles in the center control console. Having them pushed all the way forward and down draws from the main tank. Having them midway between fore and aft draws from the auxiliary tank. Having them all the way aft and up shuts off both tanks. Further down line in the fuel system from the selector valves, there are two crossfeed valves, one in each wing. Depending on the orientation of the crossfeed valve, this allows engines one and two to feed from each other's tanks, as well as same thing on engines three and four on the right wing. Once again, depending on the orientation of the crossfeed valve, it can also allow for cross-ship crossfeed, where engines one and two can get fuel from engines three and four, or vice versa. The controls for these crossfeed valves are on the right side of the throttles and also have three positions. Fully forward and down turns off the crossfeed system. Midway allows for inter-engine crossfeed either between engines one and two or engines three and four. Fully aft and up allows for cross-ship crossfeed. Is everyone confused yet? I understand how this works because I understand how fuel systems work on aircraft, and it's not dissimilar today. Now, they don't use lever systems. They have switches on the overhead panel, but it's... There's a reason for that. Right. Yes. Because you can't... I know that. This is the reason for that. I know, but... Point is, I know how these work, so... Do you have any questions, Miranda, regarding how fuel flow works between tanks? No, that makes sense. Okay. Thank God. (laughs) I feel like it's like, yeah, it can go one of two ways, or it can be off. Right, so, yeah, so because the cross feeds allow it to move fuel between fuel tanks. And even from one side of the airplane to the other. Yes, which is called cross ship. Right. Yes. So... Crossfeed valves are between engines or across the plane, and selector valves are between main and auxiliary. Got it. Okay. Now, last time we discussed levers that are next to throttles. What did we discuss? Watches. What if they weren't in detents? Oh, you mean the other one? The other um, one. If they weren't in detents, it, it, they either weren't fully on or fully off. Stop. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> What if the lever wasn't fully in one of its designated positions? So, looking at the crossfeed valve, we have to explain how this works. And this is the same way the selector valves work. I just have a picture of a crossfeed valve. It has three connection points. In this case, we're looking at the starboard one. So it has the number four selector, so fuel from or to the number four selector, fuel to or from the number three selector, and the cross-ship cross-feed. Got it. There is a center rotating component with three corresponding inlet outlet points. If open for cross-ship feed, the centerpiece is rotated so that all three inlet outlet points align with all three connection points, and the fuel from selectors four and three can flow across to engines one and two depending on what booster pumps are being used. Right. If the inter-engine cross-flow is selected, the centerpiece is rotated so that only, only two, two channels can yep. go between the two. Got exactly. It. So it just goes between the number four and number three selector and the cross-ship cross-feed 
outlet is closed. It's right. plugged. If no crossfeed is selected, the centerpiece is rotated so that only one inlet outlet is aligned with the number four selector and the number three selector and the cross ship crossfeed are both plugged. Right. In this scenario, fuel is still allowed to flow in the crossfeed valve itself, but nothing goes out. Right. Since they're plugged. Right. So it's just kind of circling around in the valve. Right. But once more, I ask, what if the lever wasn't fully in one of its designated positions? If jostled slightly, the movement of the crossfeed valve handle in the cockpit causes a quote-unquote cracked status of the crossfeed valve, which then unplugs the number three selector and the cross ship ever so slightly. And that fuel that's circling around in the crossfeed valve is allowed to slowly leak through those connections. Great. I hate everything. Well, how much of a jostle would that require, you might ask? I'm guessing not much. Once more, there's a picture of this on the website because I'm about to spout out a bunch of numbers at you. This lever goes from what we'll call zero degrees as fully forward and down back to 80 degrees in the fully aft and up position. Between zero and 11, the crossfeed valve acts as closed. Between 11 and 31 degrees, the valve is cracked. 31 to 46 degrees is full fuel flow between the engines in that wing. 46 to 73 degrees is once again cracked. And lastly, 73 to 80 degrees allows for cross-ship cross-feed. So a large portion of that is cracked. And these don't have detents from my understanding. It's just a loose forward backward thing. Uh-huh. I hate that. Me too. Like a lot. Guess why there's switches now? So that there can't, this doesn't happen? Yeah. So, okay, basically what you're saying is fuel exhaustion in the engines is what happened. It went all over to the other side of the... Of the it's thing. possible. They, they don't know for sure. Let me keep going. Now, the exact flow of fuel is also dependent on what booster pump is running as each tank and crossfeed has its own. Investigators performed a ground test with all four engines running from their main tanks with booster pumps on and crossfeed cocks cracked. I don't like that's what that's what they're called. Yeah. When the number four main tank was run dry, the number four engine stopped. The number three engine was then selected to its empty number three auxiliary tank with the auxiliary tank booster pump being switched on and all the main tank booster pumps being left on. All three remaining engines continue, but when the throttles were then opened, the number three engine stopped. This replicated what was somehow assumed to be the accident sequence. Investigators examined the airline's Argonaut fuel logs to determine if inadvertent crossfeed or fuel transfer had ever happened before. And guess what? It happened at least three times. I'll come back to that. So, sorry, go back. I, I think I 100% missed 90 There was a very specific set of circumstances. Like, certain booster pumps had to be on drawing from certain tanks. But let me keep going. But. So there so, is a. So, sorry. There's, like, a specific part that's, like, my head's not right. Okay. Around. So, you said when you started going through all the fuel system stuff, right? You can switch between the main and the auxiliary tank. Were they just not trying to figure out what tank was on and off? We don't know. And so, in that one test they did, they drew from the number four main fuel tank until it ran dry. Right. And from the number three auxiliary tank till it ran dry. Right. Which I'm not sure why that matters. Either way, they replicated it, sort of. But so do other circumstances. Okay. So let me continue. What exactly happened in that cockpit? Engine four definitely failed first. Which probably means that it ran out of fuel. Due to inadvertent fuel transfer. Got it. Either from a cracked crossfeed valve or a cracked selector valve or both. Mm. Impossible to determine. Okay. The 
surviving flight attendant reported that the flaps had been lowered but were later retracted, and investigators determined that the pilot in command had lowered the flaps to 15 for the approach check, but then raised them to 10 degrees when he decided to overshoot, which is what the rams were found to be set at in the wreckage. The flap actuators were found to be in the fully closed position, indicating that the approach check was never completed as it required flaps to be set between 20 and 40 degrees. So, approach check not complete. Got it. Well, what else is in the approach check that wasn't completed? It calls for a check of the fuel controls to ensure that the main tanks were on and the cross feeds are off. It was determined that that actually happened. Because the act of confirming cross feed off actually cut off any fuel from engine 4, which already had dry tanks, which is when it failed. Hmm. I'm sorry, this is all very confusing. The total energy plot that investigators had derived from the FDR, very old school, showed that the number three engine failed 15 seconds later, and investigators had a total of five possibilities to test as to why that might be. Number one, icing. No, because that would have affected engines one and two. That, That one's pretty easy one to just say no. Mechanical or electrical failure unrelated to engine four. There's no evidence of that. Nope. Number three, the pilot shut down engine three instead of engine four after properly identifying that engine four had failed. This was deemed highly improbable, but also even if this had happened, they had seven minutes to fix it. That's why they deemed it impossible. Now, I worded that very specifically. This is what was determined to not have happened. The pilot shut down engine three instead of engine four after properly identifying that engine four had failed. Option four, which I took a screenshot of so I didn't F it up. That when number four engine failed, it was misidentified as number three, and that number three was feathered and its fuel shut off. Mm -hmm. That the pilot in command then found not only that cleaning up number three engine had not eased the handling problem, that he was losing height when he should not have with three engines under power, and so came to the conclusion that the failure was in fact number four. That number three was then unfeathered and number four feathered, but because of the high workload power was not restored to number three in time to prevent the crash. Huh. Did you get all that? So... Misidentifying the engine, turning the wrong engine off, feathering the wrong engine. Mm-hmm. So thinking, it, thinking engine three failed. Right, right, right. Turning, turning off, off engine three. Yeah. Then realizing it wasn't, feathering engine four, unfeathering engine three, but not able to, to Return reignite power. Yeah, re-ignite. engine three. Mm-hmm. So this is potentially valid. Investigators determined that a supercharged piston with constant speed props It could be difficult to immediately recognize which engine was no longer delivering power, and a constant speed unit ensures that a failed engine is still delivering the same RPM as before the failure, so that's not a reliable indicator of which engine failed. Also, the manifold pressure would remain the same, so that's not a good indicator either. The only valid indicator would be the fuel pressure gauge and the fuel flow meter, but they also have dual pointer fuel pressure gauges and flow meters, which may have exacerbated the issue. So I think what they're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, any DC-4 pilots question mark but i think engine number three and engine number four indicators are on the same gauge why the hell would they do that it says dual what 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 did i say what was the exact phrase i used dual pointer fuel pressure gauges so i'm assuming that's what they mean by that so i can also see why you could confuse engine number three and engine number four that's like a complete like manufacturer problem like why the hell would you put that on the same honestly i'd have to see it to know i'm not sure I'm not either. This is what I have to work with. Hmm. The extremely high workload in the cockpit at this point would have explained the failure to restore power to number three. For example, the number three tank selector valve would have to be opened by the co-pilot as well as he would have to close the number four selector valve and 
that both of those are on the opposite side of the central control console from him and the pilot in command can't do it because he's flying the plane. So to reach the valves, the co-pilot would have had to unbuckle himself. So hate all of that. Yeah. Option number five. This last situation run through was that number three main tank had also run dry because of inadvertent fuel transfer, either cross ship through cracked cross feed valves or to number three auxiliary tank. And that when the position of the cross feed and tank selector controls was checked during the approach check fuel till then feeding number three engine through the cracked valves from another tank or tanks was cut off and starvation of number three followed almost immediately. This would explain the short time of 15 seconds between failures and why power wasn't restored within the seven minutes they continued to fly. You can't reignite an engine with no fuel. Right. Yeah. Turns out. Ultimately, it was concluded that the failure of the number three engine could have been either from being misidentified as a fail engine and being feathered and unfeathered without time to restart, or that it also ran out of fuel in inadvertent fuel transfer. Quote, to choose between these two possibilities would on the evidence be speculation. End quote. Well, okay then. Investigators determined that although going around ultimately actually led to the disaster, it was the right thing to do. They could have stuck the landing the first time, but they found the pilot in command was reasonable in his decision to not continue the approach. Yeah, yeah I mean, when you don't no know one what's here, going on with the engine. No, and no one here questioned that decision. No, and it's understandable. Which kind of sucks. Yes. Because how are you supposed to know? He right. did the right thing. Right. Okay, I'm not done yet, actually. I know that felt done. Correspondence between BOAC and Canadair in 1953 and 1950 showed that BOAC had already learned at that point of the inadvertent fuel transfer without experiencing a disaster, and they were able to add special rigging mechanisms to prevent it from happening. Air Lingus had Carvairs, which are very similar to the Argonaut, and also had discovered the problem and were able to manage it. Invicta Airways had discovered it on their DC-4s and found ways to manage it. From this, it can be determined that once made aware of the problem, it's fairly easy to address. At the time of the accident, not only did British Midlands believe inadvertent fuel transfer in flight was impossible on the Argonaut, but the AAIB and the Air Registration Board didn't know that it could occur on such a significant scale. Failure to communicate the possibility of inadvertent fuel transfer in the air was regarded as a major contributory cause to this accident. Canadair failed to include any warning about the design of the valve and failed to communicate to any of their operators once BOAC experienced difficulties with the valve 13 years earlier. And it was an Argonaut that they were they knew for like from yes uh, BOAC, mm-hmm. but all the other derivations of DC four had the same problem because they were all designed the same way. Well, my but my like playing again playing devil's advocate, right? Like if it was a different airplane, right? Mm-hmm. Other than the Argonaut, though they are very very similarly engineered, well, right? The fuel system is unchanged between all of them. Yeah, but their their case would be oh, but it's not the same airplane. No, nope, it was Canada Air. But if that's the case, if the manufacturer's like, yeah, we f- up. Mm-hmm. Right. And didn't tell anyone. You don't say anything. You should say something. That's catastrophic. Yeah. That can cause fuel exhaustion over multiple engines. Obviously. We've covered fuel exhaustion before. It's deadly. People yep. die yep. because they're like, oh, f- we have no fuel. Where are we going to land? Right. What happens if that happens in the middle of the damn ocean? It did. But they landed. But they landed. <laughs> They had a place to go. But what if you don't have a place to go? What if you're uh, 1,500 feet above the ground? Right. So. Well, then you just become a glider and you glide. Unless Obviously. Are, unless it's two engines on the same wing. Right. Then you just go in circles. <laughs> Obviously, the most painful things here are not having a CVR. Yes. And having a massive design flaw in an aircraft where a manufacturer just didn't do anything about that. 
nope. The issue was is they knew it could happen. Right. Like, if they didn't know it could... Like, we talked about with the last one with the stupid handle right like mm-hmm. they didn't know that could happen but here they were like oh yeah no we definitely knew it could happen mm-hmm. we just didn't say anything right and i imagine that the riggings that they came up with were um detent gates yeah yeah why it didn't have those to begin with baffles me right because it was the 1960s and they were like we don't need that well it was made in the 1950s so or prior right we don't need that so anywho we're gonna take a break break yep and then we have some important things to talk about in the second half. Second, third, quarter. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We'll talk about the, the, the elephant, the hidden elephant in the room. There were technically three findings. I am reading one. You can imagine what the other two were. Mm. Found that shortly after the pilot reported receiving the ILS, the number four engine failed due to fuel starvation because of the inadvertent fuel transfer in flight, and it was feathered. Fifteen seconds later, the number three engine ceased to deliver power and was windmilling. The loss of power on engine number three was due either to fuel starvation resulting from inadvertent fuel transfer in flight or to misidentification by the crew of which engine had failed. That's the only finding. Feels pretty probable causey though, doesn't it? Well, here's the cause or probable cause eds. Right. The immediate cause of the accident was loss of power of both engines on the starboard side resulting in control problems which prevented the pilot from maintaining height on the available power with one propeller windmilling. The loss of power of the first engine was due to fuel starvation due to inadvertent fuel transfer in flight. The loss of power of the second engine was due either to fuel starvation resulting from inadvertent fuel transfer in flight or to misidentification by the crew of which engine had failed followed by failure to restore power in time to the engine misidentified as having failed. Blah, 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 blah. Words. Now, there's more. Contributory causes of the accident were, A, the design of the fuel valves and location in the cockpit of their actuating lever so that a failure by the pilot correctly to position the lever by an amount so small as to be easy to do and difficult to recognize would result in inadvertent fuel transfer on a scale sufficient to involve the risk after a long flight of a tank expected to contain sufficient fuel being in fact empty. B. Failure of those responsible for the design of the fuel system or the fuel valves to warn users that failure by a small amount to place the actuating levers in the proper position would result in inadvertent fuel transfer on a scale involving this risk after a long flight. C. Failure of British Midlands air crew or engineers to recognize the possibility of inadvertent fuel transfer in the air from the evidence available in previous incidents in flight and contained in the fuel logs. So there I come back to the, it had happened three times before. Right, they should know. And they knew because when the plane landed, it didn't have the right amount in each tank. Right. Like when it landed before? In previous flights. Right. The fuel logs didn't match what was in the tanks. Right. And and they were like, oh, that's not weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's that. I said I'd come back to it. Right. Forgot to. There's one more. And D, failure of other operators of Argonauts who had learned by experience of the possibility of inadvertent fuel transfer in flight to inform the Air Registration Board, the Directorate of Flight Safety of the Board of Trade or its predecessors, or the United Kingdom Flight Safety Committee of the facts which they had learned so that these might be communicated to other operators of Argonauts or other aircraft equipped with similar systems and fuel cocks. Yeah. And that feels a little finding-y to me. But also true. Yes. 
I mean, it's still probable causey because it was a probable cause. Okay. Yes. Well, your recommendation. The one and only recommendation has nothing to do with the again very large elephant in the room that's hidden here. But that Miranda actually asked about and probably forgot about. No, I didn't, but I knew we'd circle around to it. Okay, yeah, we'll get to it. But this is still very important. The only recommendation made was that, and that's what they wrote, by the way. The only recommendation made was that express warning should be given by the Air Registration Board to all operators of Argonauts and other aircraft with similar fuel systems and valves with design characteristics similar to the Parker valves of the consequences of the cracking of the fuel valves, either as a result of faulty rigging or of the failure of the pilot to ensure that the selector lever is in the correct position. The warning should be contained in flight and maintenance manuals and should be the subject of prompt action. Or just re-engineering. Like Put detents. Yeah, like it should be a detented system. Or a switch. Well, mm -hmm. now there are switches. Yes, now there are switches on the overhead panel, so you can't do this. And also, they're usually a lot simpler fuel systems than this. Yeah, this seemed kind of complicated. It was to some extent, but I mean... It, it was an old fuel system. It also made some amount of sense because of the engine designs, but... I only say that because, like, of the whole, like, each engine had two things, and you had to do certain things to do this thing, and certain things to do this thing, and then right. if you wanted to go all across, it has to go this thing. Like, it's a whole thing. Right. Now it's probably just like a switch, and it, like, does the whole thing for you. Yep. It does. Okay. So, the elephant in the room. So, Miranda, what was your question earlier? Do I 100% remember? Remind me, what was it about? Like, um, How subject? did the people in the back not oh, get out? yeah. So, you know how when you go to put your... Bag under your seat, there's a bar there. Yeah. You know how there's safety bars all through the uh, seats? To make them sturdy. What if they all came loose and all accordioned together and smashed everyone's legs? <gasps> so they were trapped? So the real thing that came out of this incident that changed the world was the fact that most of these people perished because they were trapped and thus engulfed in flames or were crushed by the rapid deceleration. By the rapid deceleration, because everybody's seats came forward into one another. So they were all strapped into their seats, and then they all just accordioned right through one another. So yeah. what? Because so the my, bars my didn't hold any structural help. Conversation about the lawn chair. Yep. I, yeah, that was really pointed. Uh huh. So Your my 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 stupid. dad's uh, passenger was like, yeah. So there was a crash where a bunch of people couldn't get out because their legs got crushed because all the seats compacted together i'm like yeah we're talking about that tomorrow right allow me to read again wikipedia the best source of information but allow me to read the one paragraph they have on this as well in this story because i don't, I don't understand why this gets so diminished when this is really the, re the real reason this was the fourth deadliest accident in british history yep in air, British aviation Because history. everyone was trapped inside the hull of the airplane? Right. Or died because all the chairs came loose? Right. Ultimately, this wouldn't have been as deadly in the end if that had not been the case. All right, quote from the Wikipedia page. The AIB also examined passenger and crew survivability during the accident. Post-mortem examination of the passengers showed that those in the very front of the fuselage had been killed by rapid deceleration injuries, but those further aft had suffered massive crushing injuries to their lower legs that stopped them from escaping the burning wreckage. Investigators found that the bracing bars, meant to keep the rows of seats separated, were too weak to stop the rows from collapsing together like a concertina and determined that had the bars been adequately strong, most of the passengers would have been able to escape the aircraft. Bruh. Really unfortunate. Bruh. 
the most unfortunate part of this accident overall. Yes, there was a mistake, but then there was also a massive safety design flaw. Bruh. Massive. This reminds me of when we talked about when the seats caught on fire and they released not, like, toxic gases. Yeah, really toxic gases. Like, it's like, you know, you would think. This would have been thought of, Someone would have thought of it. Like, someone would have been like, you know, what happens... If we set this on fire! Yeah, or what happens if we just push the seats really hard forward? Like, what happens? So now they have mechanisms to test all these things. Now, to be fair, in the 1950s, 60s, do I know how they would set that up to test that absolutely not because they do not have computer generated kind of things today that we have right that we could have easily just plugged in an algorithm and figured it out well and um, sensors and right. yeah we also do we also do physical tests on these things and there's actually plenty of videos out there of how they physically test airline seats and the mythbusters actually have also done this uh there was an episode where they actually used a group of airline seats and it sits on a track pointed downward and then releases and it you experience like three g's of stopping instant stopping force or something like that or three or four g's or something like that but it proves that the seats hold yeah and how they keep you in your seat how they support people and don't i wonder if they talk about this crash in that episode i don't know i'd have to look it up my other thought probably not it would be in the the like in pop culture thing yeah but if they're, my other thought too with testing it, especially you know back in the fifties and sixties, would they have thought to put like sandbags or something to have weight in them? Because they might have stopped because there was nothing in them. Mm-hmm. But what happens when you put a hundred pound person in a seat, right. and then it goes forward really hard, and then all of a sudden it rips out of the floor because there's weight? Right. That's a big piece. I don't know. Point made (laughs) in this accident, the seats were heavily unsafe, and now they are designed so that they don't, I don't know, crush you? Ideally. In an accident? Yeah. So you don't get trapped? Yeah. Ideally. Amazingly, seats actually, in aircraft these days, for as easy as they are for, like, maintenance to remove in an accident, remarkably attached almost every time to the floor and the wall. Like, they just don't move. But oh. if the floor and the wall come apart... Yeah, we got other problems. Different story. Well, but we've covered several instances where that's why it happens now yes. that they don't. Yes. Because they were like, oh yeah, that happened. We should fix it. Right. Yes, you should. Which is good, because then we make seats that are... Safe. safe. Yep. Safe and comfortable. Although some seats are not comfortable, but you know. So that was the really big thing that actually changed from this. Now, of course, the fuel systems changed. And that was an important change, too, because there were DC-4s for still quite some time, actually, after this. There are still a handful of DC-4s and DC-6s flying about the world, but they are quite old, and they have found ways to mitigate these issues, obviously, throughout history, so that that yep. doesn't... Happen. Happen. Again. But this it's unfortunate that it took this accident to kind of realize that. I to realize like- both issues. I feel like, though, and I i mean, we've talked about this before, mm-hmm. sometimes it has to happen for people to realize it's a problem. Yep. Yes, unfortunately. Now, this happened three times before this happened, right. which kind of pisses me sometimes off. Sometimes it has to happen a lot. really bad for somebody to do something about it. Not to realize it, but to do something about it. What was the thing we talked about, about? I don't remember. There was an issue we talked about, it was probably forever ago, mm-hmm. that 
It happened like five, six, seven times. Twelve times. What was it? I don't remember. remember. Yeah, I remember it, twelve. It happened so much before they fixed it. Before they realized it was a problem. It was vaguely mm-hmm. recently, mm-hmm. and it's gonna bug the ever living. Why did you mention it? Because it bugs me. I, don't I know remember. we talked about it. I don't remember. But like, it happened so much, and they didn't do anything about it for so long. Right. Because they were like, no, it, 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 it no. Well, but, even in instances like the comet. Yes. It was weird to me. Like, the three instances it took for them to go, maybe we should do something about this. Yeah. Like, Where, like, one just why. went poof in the sky. Oh, no, the 12 thing was um one of the fire tankers. Oh. Investigators found not one, not two, but 12 separate low-stress fatigue cracks. Oh. That's what I was thinking of. Okay. Well, Sorry. there have been instances where we've talked about a lot of recurring... Accidents. Accidents. That well, were the same cause. Right. And the comet was just kind of an anomaly. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like, it was an important thing that they changed and stuff and that we realized. But at the same time, I just, it just baffles me that, like, the first one went poof. And they were like, that was strange. That was weird. They were like, that was strange. Anyway. They didn't do anything. Moving on. It. It's like that. And uh, then the second one went poof and they were like, still kind of strange. Keep flying them. It's like that Loki meme. That was sad. Anyway. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Took three or, instances. I don't know if you've watched Queen Charlotte, but it's like, thoughts and prayers, thoughts and prayers. And mm-hmm. then she walks away. <laughs> it's like yes. her granddaughter just died. Yeah. She's like, oh, oh, I'd have to find it to figure out. She said, she's like, did you just spoil something for someone? No. Oh, OK. It happens literally in the first episode in the first five minutes. So, no. But okay. she goes. Uh, hopes and wishes, hopes and wishes. She's like patting her son on the shoulder. He's like hysterically crying because his daughter just died. She hopes and wishes, <laughs> hopes and wishes. And she just is like, stop crying, damn it. And you're like, Jesus Christ, he just lost his daughter. But yeah, that it's kind of like that. Yeah. Like, like, oh yeah, that that's a thing. It's, it's kind of like the prime, cr- not the prime crash, the, um, Max? Max crashes. Mm-hmm. Because there were instances of issues, not crashes, but issues. They know about it. With the Max before, even like between the two crashes, even before the first one. And they were like, eh, no one's eh. died. They were like, it's fine. And then the. And then Lion Air crashed. Lion and they're like, eh, it's Lion Air. Yeah. It, that's, uh, and then Ethiopian crashed. And they were, we're like, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, something's wrong. Really big problem. Fortunately, only... Well, I, I don't want to say fortunately. Over 350 Un- people died. Unfortunately, it took yes. two times for them to realize it was a problem with the aircraft. Right. I mean, the DC-10 is another example of this, where it oh. took several of them to go boom. The cargo door? Yeah. Before they were like, mm, we should do something about that. Yeah. <laughs> huh. The 737s. Yeah. The hard over. The, the hard overs. overs. Well, that one was kind of hard, though, because they had to have difficult. someone survive it to figure out that... Oh, they really yeah. fought hard for that one, too. It took a long time to figure that one out. Or the microburst. Oh, that just fell from the sky anyway. Yeah. That was weird. Oh, that happened again. Weird. Oh, a lot of people died. Okay. Wow, that was really strange. Wow, look at that. Oh, weird. Don't yeah. know how that happened. This is how we end up with series on this podcast. Yep. Unfortunately. Uh, hate that. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Well. Anyways, that was the Stockport air disaster. I'll say it because... <laughs> Stockport, is that the city they crashed That is the city they crashed in. For whatever reason, I thought it was an airport. I mean, they were on their way to the airport. The airport was near Stockport, which is near Manchester. City. Town, village. Yeah. I don't know. Town. I don't know how big it was. There's 10,000. That's a town. Yeah. That's actually quite a lot of people. That's a lot of people. A lot of people probably came from Manchester because this is the airport for Manchester. Uh, Oh. This is just like a suburb. 
Town. Oh, okay. Town. Area. Town. County. Town. Who knows? Not a county. It's not the whole not county. county. No. I don't know. They take the county seriously in the UK. They do. Here we're and like, eh, we're here somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening. Thanks, Helen, again. For recommending this episode and, and all the, the other ones the 10,000 episodes that you recommended at once so, sorry i forgot to say it at the beginning <laughs> i suck manchester airport stockport i see oh it's like right in between mm-hmm. where they so, cur- where they cursed they were probably inbound this way yeah. didn't make it ended up in the middle of stockport well that's which is a suburb that sucks that sucks God, anyway. that sounded awful. It, it actually sucks. It it really does. It was really bad. We're just we're we're making light of the aviation community's attitudes. It sucks anyway. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to recommend episodes, please email us. I know we say you can use social media, and you can. It's just slightly inconvenient. But now that I'm not in charge of the social media aspect anymore, it's easier for me to do it if you email us. That true. being said, if you absolutely have to use Facebook or Instagram... That's fine. We still see it. We'll, we'll, we'll still I'll see figure it. it out. But if you requested something on Facebook or Instagram and you still haven't gotten a response from us, I would email it to You us. can also do it on Patreon. We'll see it there. If well, you're a patron. Pa- yeah, Patreon will come in through email anyway because mm-hmm. when you message us or when you comment on something, it will come in our right. email. So Either way, speaking of Patreon... You should check out Patreon. Lots of stuff. Listen to us complain about how freaking hot it is up here. Yeah. Actually, warm. right right now I'm like pretty comfortable. I'm all right. Oh, I'm dying. It's pretty roasty toasty, but I'm all right. I'm not all right. You're not fine. <laughs> not fine. <laughs> uh, and, you know, make sure there's like a lot of stuff on the on the Patreon. A lot. Uh, a lot. A lot, a lot. You can get a lot. So make sure you check it out. Oh, we need to do trivia. Oh, yeah. Trivia question. Yes. Answer some And we'll do that and then we'll questions. sign off. It's a good thing I remember that. Okay. Here are the trivia question answers. All right. Where does Al, a.k.a. Nick's dad, live? And what country is he from? He lives in Portland, Oregon. And he is from Italy. Italy. Did anybody get that right? I don't think so. I think they got aspects of it right. I don't think anyone knew where your dad lives. Yeah. But I think. I'm pretty sure we've talked about it. A lot. But I think someone got where he's from. Yes. Probably. Because we've talked about, you know, the Italian in the room. The the Italian? Me. The hand gesture guy? But yes, he's from Portland, Oregon. I only see one person where he lives answered. Now. I know there was a lot of people answered this month. There was a couple people. Mm-hmm. Um, where? One of them was on the actual thing. I know, Scott did. Scott did. Bob always tries his hand at it. Bob didn't do it this month, and that's probably because he had some stuff, stuff happening. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. I got to oh, some searching. David did it. Yes, that's the person I'm thinking of. David said somewhere in the Pacific Northwest. Yes. Correct. You are correct. And he's from Italy. I'll take it. Also correct. Okay, the next one is what is the long version of Vi's name? Vi is the cat that was bothering us all this episode, uh, which you probably won't hear unless you hear the blooper reel. It's short for violence. <laughs> violence. People now- guessed Violet. Or Vi. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. I would take the second one as an acceptable answer there. Violence. Not Violet. Violence. Violence. We figured that out recently, so yeah. if you didn't know that one, it's not the end of the world. Mother. Name a country that the three of us have been to in the last year. Okay, we 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 were flexible on this one because technically our cruise was in June of last year. 
but we'll accept such answers. Scott said Amsterdam and something else. Iceland, I think. And David said America. I mean, we live in America, so that technically doesn't count. Both are right, though. We've traveled to other places in America in the last year. Yeah, but that's not what we meant. But no. We live here. I know. What other countries? We would have also taken uh, Belgium. Uh, We would have taken Ireland. Netherlands. UK. Yep. We would have taken Canada. Yep. Yep. So. And then uh, last one. What is Christy's least favorite episode? Okay. We just talked about this last episode. We talked about this a lot. Which had not (laughs) aired yet. No. When these people answered. No. David says, the one where Derek gets hit by a truck and all of them with that damn Denny. Damn Danny. I don't want know what he's talking about. I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. Are you talking about the Miranda episode where the cargo looks hit a truck? I don't know what's happening. There's Are you talking about that... a listener episode? There's a joke here that went over my head. Yeah. The real answer. The real answer is Mount Erebus, a.k.a. New Zealand Airlines Flight 901, a.k.a. Episode 51. And yep. we literally did a whole explanation last episode so, about why. Yep. So we're not going to say why. Mm. Go listen to that spiel if you do so wish. It's at the end of the, literally, the last episode that you really should have listened to before you listen to this episode. But if you didn't, you should go back and listen to that one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Anything that has to do with... Navigation. Like, old navigation. I hate it. Like, when we didn't have GPS, I hate it. Uh, Christie's hates it because it's hard to understand. Which yeah, it is. It is. I'm also not a pilot. It's also yeah. not necessary anymore. Freaking GPS fixed everything. Yeah. Cut it out with all this ridiculous navigation crap. Ugh. Aviation just needs to learn to move forward. It's unimportant to like understand where you are in space. The fact that we navigated with radio waves is really cool, but um, it's not necessary anymore. Wow. It's also not as safe. <laughs> yeah. No. So anyway, so. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Violence also thanks you for um, funding her food. Addiction. Yes. And we hope you have a safe and healthy week. And we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.